Let's test the audio. Are we testing the audio? We're testing the audio. 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 Audio. We're testing it. This is In Berlin, season number two, episode number six. That makes for 14 episodes in total, which, as everyone knows, Fred, is the number of... Cows in a field. <laughs> that was, this is what happens. That was stream is, of consciousness. This, <laughs> just the first thing that came to mind. What this the fuck? This is what happens when we don't rehearse our introductions. Um... My name's Andrew. Have I introduced myself yet? I think you may have. I'm not sure. (laughs) My name's Andrew. I'm joined by Fred in any case. Uh, What did you want me to say? What did you want me to add? Oh, yeah. This is... (laughs) Fred just said this off the air. He wants me to say, welcome to your favorite podcast. Your favorite English language talk podcast from a Kreuzberg studio kitchen. (laughs) Welcome to that. I'm pleased to report that on your favorite podcast that meets those conditions uh we've, we've got a good one we've got a nice episode we've got ronnie blashgar we've got you know what we've got fred a series of firsts it is the first episode that we recorded drinking ginger tea which i think aided all of our voices it's the first episode that we've recorded with a sports journalist um or is he a sports journalist fred? we'll find out we'll get into that um and it's our first episode as far as i know recorded with someone with actual radio experience and it shows such a lovely voice even if you if even if you don't speak a word of english you could still listen to this episode and just listen to his voice it's it's wonderful i wanted to say it could soothe you to sleep but the the content that is discussed is so stimulating fred that there's no way that you could sleep through this one or hopefully any of our episodes we talk um to a large extent about this what i consider interesting trajectory that Ronnie has been on over the course of his career, where he started out covering sport as a journalist because he was interested in sport, particularly football. He grew up in Rostock, which I believe is what used to be East Germany, Fred. You believe right. And he's he's just old enough to have experienced Rostock while it was still East Germany. So and apparently Ronnie is quite an East German name as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think he mentions that in the podcast. Which I only learned Anyway, that's not important. That's well his name is important, but that's not that's not relevant to what I'm about to say. He got into sport for the sake of sport. He was covering sport because he was interested in just football in and of itself. But then he's been on this trajectory where he's moved on to covering football from more of a social political perspective. So he's written books on the intersection between sport and Nazism, for example, sport and racism. I think early in his career he looked into sport and, and homophobia and and and, and uh, questions he's like. He's written about a gay referee in particular. Thank you. I was waiting for you to, to chip in. I knew I was missing something there, Fred. <laughs> but I really think what's what's essential is that beyond talking about football as such, we really dug into these societal issues. Um, and at one point, I even got into this free market debate with him. I wouldn't quite call it a debate, but you, bit you, of, you, bit of, you raised the topic briefly. Bit of a debate, bit of a debate. So I think it's time for us to shut up now and um, let you listen to Ronnie's beautiful, soothing voice. <laughs> you have a voice that is almost configured for podcasting well he does he does work for you know the radio 
Yeah, when I do when I do speak my radio features, some sometimes the editor says I should practice it more, I right? Know, because I, I I emphasize the wrong wrong phrases. I don't know, but he's not yeah. he's not really satisfied. And do you have a do you have a like a speaker sort of training? Did did you do like a you know like a Sprecher Ausbildung, like a professional speakers training? Not really professional. I met a I met a, a coach maybe four or five times. But this is five, six years ago. And as a journalist, I don't really care. I mean, I do care a little bit, but normally the, the content and the oh. words are more important for me than actually this whole technical stuff. Yeah. Um, do you do any exercises before you speak? Vocal uh, exercises? Maybe a little bit. Not, not really. I should do. I should do more. I, I studied media as an undergraduate way back in the day. And we were taught a huge number of vocal exercises, which I have never once practiced since I actually started working on a media project. Andrew also used to work in radio, student radio, but radio. It, uh, actually, Frederick, it was part student radio, part community radio. Right. The community radio was arranged through my uh, university, but it wasn't like a student radio station. Anyway. So this is supposed to be funny, all right? So I, it doesn't have the, to this be. This was a humorous remark. That was, that was yes, that was the humorous segue. Wow, <laughs> yeah. you you can't just like go all meta in like the first <laughs> yeah. two minutes and like destroy our like our <laughs> on-air personas. <laughs> like, there needs to be a certain level of you know. You need to, you need to uh, still hide behind the character. We need to still hide behind the characters. Yeah. So maybe you're, you're breaking him. Already. You're breaking me already. <laughs> so I'll switch this on you. Tough question. Are you a sports journalist? I am a sports journalist, actually, but sometimes I don't really like the term sports journalist because I am more covering the background stories. Yeah. So sometimes when people introduce me as a sports journalist, I like, am I really? And probably I am because the sport is finally the medium to discuss all the other topics. Yeah. So, yeah, I can live with it. The, the how do you, how do you uh, answer that annoying question at cocktail parties when someone asks what you do? Actually, this is um, because I always have to pretend that I really like to be a sports journalist because when I when when people uh, assume I'm a sports journalist, they always ask, can you get for free into the football stadium? Did you see any World Cup finals? And then everybody's like, well, he's a sports journalist. And the passion is a little bit gone yeah. for the big sports. But then I take some time and I explain it. It must take a while for them to understand that you don't write about who's the better player, Messi or Ronaldo. There's so much of that sports journalism that really saturates mainstream media and what you do actually is completely different. So maybe we could start by you explaining in the way that you explain to people at cocktail parties what it is that you do within sports journalism because it is, it's quite different, I think, to what most of our listenership would be used to. Actually, I did become a sports journalist because I liked sport. And um, already in school, when I was 16 or 17, I played football. I was a goalkeeper and my favorite club was Hansa Rostock. Right. Um, at the Baltic Sea in north of Germany and I wanted to be close to my favorite players so right. that was the reason why yeah. I wanted to be a sports journalist and I saw I don't know dozens maybe hundreds of, of matches and I I was um, at the World Cup and at the Olympics and the more time passed by the I didn't really like it th that much anymore because pl players say all the same crap and it's really I don't know it's always the same and the corruption and the violence and so many negative um, things I didn't really I didn't feel connected anymore. And then I was more egoistic and I picked the topics I was really interested in. So the first hooligans, then gay football players, street football world is one of the big, many examples, um, more the political stuff. And um, I thought it over again. I think I, I became more a political person um, in football. Um, okay, so yeah. football was really your gateway to the political side of things, more so than... 
the original interest in politics that then led you to football as a medium to discuss the politics? Yeah, I grew up in a in a very small village, so my my family and my my friends they weren't really political. What village? It's like some village outside of Rostock. Or yeah, like? yeah, thirty kilometers eastern of of Rostock, very small small right, right. village. And politics were never really an issue. Um, traveling wasn't an issue, and. Um, in my early 20s, when I noticed in the football club, there were racists and right-wing extremists misusing the football club. And then I didn't really understand it back then, but I started to read more about it, asked more questions, and then maybe the interest grew. You say, you say in your early 20s you started to notice this, but my, my understanding is that Rostock actually has a reputation for having a relatively far-right fan base. I would have thought if you were going to games from an early age, it must have been quite present from your from your first impressions of actual live football. Yeah. True. Nineties, end of the nineties, when when I went there with friends of my of my um, village and the school, but I, I'm not sure if I really understood it. So it's almost didn't you have friends ago. in that like? What were your friends like? Did you have any that were like I don't know in a crowd where you'd say, "Whoa, this is." Possibly. I, I do remember that, but I do remember already, or I do the the feeling that I didn't really understand it, maybe, because it's it's 20 years ago and because politics were not that important. And now I'm 35 and maybe the last six, seven, eight years, I, I'm more interested in my past and the past of my family. Mm. And my mother grew up in, in, in communism and my my grandfather was the was the soldier in World War Two. These questions are popping up now, which yeah. is maybe sometimes the case. But I wasn't really in the active fence fence scene of Hansa Rostock. I I, um, I went to the games, not all of them, but I I observed it. I enjoyed the anonymous feeling mm-hmm. of being a part of a group. I did enjoy that, and I I noticed the racism, but it wasn't really. I wasn't. Maybe I was shocked, but it wasn't at the beginning not yeah. really a thing where I went really crazy about it. This came came later. It's interesting because when I when I give lectures now in schools or in fan projects, because I talk to 17, 18, 19 year olds, and most of them they have the same. They don't really understand it. And but, but isn't that isn't do you recognize a lack of like a lack of empathy that you have? Because you just don't like once you grow older it becomes you you become sort of more capable of putting yourself in someone else's shoes is that and i think that's is is that part of the thing that as a teenager you just don't have this basic empathy to like think about okay if the whole fan curve like throws bananas at a black player that's obviously super racist and very hurtful and not do you think is a coming of age thing um we i mean now we have all the ngos and all the articles and so many studies about the themes but 15 20 years ago even in germany oh, nothing thing, was yeah. nothing was published back then and and for me, it was when I wrote my first book 11, 12 years ago, even now, when I, when I look back and I read it again, I would say, I, I would, if I would write it again, I would write it differently. Same, yeah. to, the other, same to the other book. So you have a, another political opinion with 25 than with 35. Mm. So, um, what, it, what would you say has changed in the last 10 years? Or maybe we should actually first go to the process that led you to that first book. So you studied in Rostock as well. No, the, the, um, the interesting thing is I was 16, already in school, 10th grade. I, I worked for my local paper very early and I wanted to be a journalist right away. I did many internships and the university was a little hobby. So I didn't really study very carefully and yeah. passionately. I wanted to be a journalist. 
And this was maybe the mistake. I maybe now I, because I didn't really follow my university, if I would study now again with really deep interest, um, I would, sometimes I think about it, studying again, some some totally different. Because yeah. journalism, something went, goes wrong and in media, um, I'm not always satisfied, but yeah. With the general state of the media? <laughs> the general <laughs> Because that's a big debate. <laughs> yeah, there's a very big debate. But uh, sometimes I, I mean, the, the past years, I'm not, I don't really feel that connected anymore yeah. to the whole thing. And it's so difficult for me as a freelancer to, to persuade the editors of covering the social issues in mm. football. It's, it's sometimes very frustrating. Because, because they don't for us generate, it's so obvious, right? Because mm. they, don't, they don't generate traffic, clicks. The sad thing is that I think they don't really, they, they don't even reflect that. I'm not sure if they even may, may they think about it. So your first book uh, explored the, the intersection between football and racism. This is in a time where I imagine there was even less media attention on this, this, this background story than there is now. Was it difficult to actually get the book deal in the first place? Did you have to fight hard for that? Mm. Maybe a little bit because uh, back then some studies did exist, but uh, like a popular book, which for a brighter audience didn't exist. And I was, I don't know, 23. So as a publisher, you think twice if yeah. you hand over a contract to a 23-year-old. And if I see the cover now, which is very, um, yeah, the colors of, sometimes I, maybe I, I exaggerated a little bit with the headlines and the pictures. So And I, and with the time, I, I would more say, It's not necessary. So my, my language and my the way of covering is more like, I don't know, humble is the word. I don't know. Nüchtern, I would say in German. Sober. Sober, right? So what would you do differently now with uh, that first book? I would change the cover. I would not be so... Um, I wouldn't... Um, maybe I exaggerated a little bit. I, I didn't like how I form, form, articulate or formulate things. And it's not really important to show the audience I did some undercover things or yeah. I went really close to some football fans. Not important yeah. to me um, anymore. Um, I have more uh, a deeper understanding how society maybe functions. So the, the, the deep understanding and empathy was lacking maybe, right. which mm. I would do differently now. How do you how do you pick your topics and how do you actually go about like the let's say the research because it does it does seem like you, you obviously the the type of information you elicit is um, from from very in depth sort of um, conversations with people so how do you how do you how do you stumble do you just stumble across those topics do you say oh, I'm just gonna become part of the ultras Rostock for a couple of months and check out how that goes like what's the what's the process. I did that for my uh, third book when I did write about right-wing extremism. So and I had a, the first chapters about uh, neo-Nazis and the fencing of Lokomotive Leipzig. But I didn't really do undercover. I don't really like that as a journalist. I think I have to stand behind my name. And uh, even all the other right-wing politics I requested for interviews, I mean, the majority rejected or didn't even answer. But the ones that wanted to give me an interview, um, then I, I talked to them and I took them serious and mm -hmm. I just uh, wrote it down what they say. Of course, critically and uh, surrounded with 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 a, with a facts um, in this post-factual time. Yeah, oh my God, yes. Oh But God. Um, so I, I'm not really a fan of, of these... Um, um, putting myself as a journalist into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Maybe it works. Maybe I'd, I would attract a bigger audience, but I don't, I don't yeah. really like that. Um, I, I like to speak 
let the facts or the quotation speak for them for itself. I hope sometimes it works. Um, and yeah, so the, the, the truth, I hope that the, the truth is on my side, but I have to very be very accurate and close to the, to the people and the stories. One thing I've noticed from following football myself is there can be such a huge difference between a football fan as he or she is just walking to the game and a football fan when you're completely anonymous, surrounded by this other mass of people, this, this real tribal group mentality yeah. can take over and completely change your behaviour. So I'd be interested to know when you were actually speaking to these far right-wing fans from Leipzig, did you get a chance to talk to them one-on-one? -on -one? Did you invite them into your home or did you meet up at the cafe? Did you see what they were like when they were actually away from that mob and perhaps a little bit more detached from that mob mentality? Of course, the neo-Nazis I spoke to, um, they're not always yelling around or uh, painting swastikas um, on the walls. <laughs> yeah. So they have a normal life. And from their point of view, we are not the normal ones, right? And we yeah. are not the rational ones. But uh, I did, when I started, I, I looked up a phone number in a... In a in a forum and in an internet page so I and I there was a prepaid number and I asked for an interview publicly with my name and they asked for a for a salary for it so and I said no I don't do that we can we can meet and look if we have a connection and then um, because of course neo-nazis need journalists as well because otherwise they don't uh, have a platform. Not in public right but I, I of course I am I'm very serious and at the at the beginning of the, the at the early stage we try to persuade each other that we have the right political view But it doesn't work at all. Yeah. So it's just always confusing. And then I, I, I stepped back a little bit and just um, observed them. Um, and it, it worked quite well. And we didn't really talk about that, that much about politics. Why should we? I mean, I, I know his, his, uh, their, their views. Um, for me, it was more interesting how they did use the football, the stadium, as a platform to, to attract youngsters. And that's the scary part, isn't it? Like, That's the sort of the, the, the replacement family that you go to that indoctrinates you. and Absolutely, you mentioned it, right? It's sometimes it's the, the an anonymous thing, it's the masculine thing, um, the, yeah. the, you feel a strength and they you don't... Feel, you feel a sense of identity. I had that myself growing up in Australia following a completely different sport, Australian rules football. You go to a stadium and you're surrounded all of a sudden by thousands of people who are, who are supporting the same team, the, so, the same cause that you're supporting. You feel this sense of connection that you don't actually get on the, on, the, on the streets of your city day to day. So I think that can be very powerful. Right, and it's not automatically bad, right? If, if, if you then meet the wrong people um, and they tell you something with big words like honor and, and we are one group and strongest wins and then maybe the third or fourth step is to talk about politics but that comes very late and but so do these supporters really use the club as a tool to recruit younger people to to support their ideological positions D did you get the sense that they really cared about the fortunes of the club whether they got relegated or promoted whether they won this match or that match or it was really just one big opportunity for them to recruit new members to whatever whatever group they were part of Right. Th those are the terms I used myself very early. But but uh, we, if we take the word, um, uh, yeah, they infiltrate. Um, in, from their perspective, they're football fans as well, right? They love football. They lo love their club, but they just think differently than us. But um, it's not like that. They take a a party program, a right wing party program, and wait in front of the stadium and, and yeah. hand it over to football fans. Mm. It's not like this. They use the. the 
the masculine, strong, uh, chauvinistic, sexist um, atmosphere, and maybe feel more comfortable. And and this is maybe one fundament. Um, and then on the top, um, they can can later on, if they feel comfortable, they can talk about politics. But if imagine you're a 15, 16, 14, and your mother told you, don't say insulting and discrimination yeah. words, yeah. you can learn this culture actually yeah. in a football yeah. stadium. Do you think this is getting worse? Do you think the connection between football and politics, at least from the German perspective, has, has, has strengthened since you first started covering this? It was always there. Right. And and since World War Two, there is a potential of 15 or 20 percent within the society which has right wing attitudes. There's like there's like the studies that says like 15 to 20 percent of the population have like right wing tendencies. What does that, what not does that really mean? Right wing tendency. But uh, if you call if you want to call someone right wing extremist, there is a different yeah. it's a puzzle of different attitudes. Yeah. Like Anti-Semitism, racism. Yeah. Yeah. If you like a strong person and instead of a democracy. And if you uh, de not deny Holocaust, but if you don't think it was that dramatic. Yeah. 15 to 20 percent and have elements of those mm. attitudes. Okay. Okay. Um, that was always there, right? Maybe the, the media interest is bigger um, and we do see that. But you know what? This was maybe one of the points when I when I when I felt didn't I write that 20 times already? Or when we had the debate now about the ultras in, in Dortmund? Yeah. And yeah. wasn't it the same debate 10 years ago? And, and was it? Was that debate really that public? I don't know. Maybe it probably was. I, I had so many like um, media um Phases where task force w were founded and big scandal and big headlines and um, I felt and I, I'm not I'm of course um, I'm a freelancer so I have maybe the the, the freedom of no I don't want to do it again yeah. so and it was so negative right and 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 now I for myself I wanted to do more the positive thing because you have ultras which are right wing but on the other have on the, on the other side you have so many engaged positive yeah interested creative ironic yeah. ultras that do incredible stuff yeah and they're pop and they're all talking to me um that they um defend and learn political issues in football and defend them outside and you can't um you can't divide football and society it's both connected right um And this for me is more interesting now. I don't want to do this all over again. Same with gay football players. And it's always the same. When is the first gay active player? When will we Okay, but at least explain this to me in like like once. Like, how is this not a thing? Like, I've, I've had this, I've actually had this conversation. Like, every, it's like, it's you know, it's one of these recurring things where like every three years, you're like sitting in a car, staring out the window and you're going like to yourself, wait, oh, we still don't have an openly gay football player in any of the major leagues. And like, it's like, you know, one of these things that <laughs> just come back to you. So like, how is this still a thing? Just the like short explanation. I just want to understand. <laughs> I don't know. Then maybe there is a, uh, there is a subconscious um, temptation that we have to search for it. So a tabloid, tabloid press kept it going, right? This taboo that we all, we all need taboos to feel interesting. Something, okay. It has to be a taboo. We need it. Um, but we needed that 10, 15 years ago. And then when I wrote my book, that was already 2008, Thomas Hitzelsberger came out, it was three years ago. Mm. And uh, that was a After bit. the end of his career. Right, right, right. But um, okay, this is another reflex, right? When Thomas Hitzelsberger came out, he got the question, why didn't you do it in your, during your oh, career? Oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way I'm phrasing this. I'm not phrasing it as a, I'm not, it's not an attack on him at all. If anything, it's more like a, Why didn't you circumstances or why couldn't circumstances allow for this to happen earlier? Like, 
No, it's not an attack on him at all. Like, that's not my point. It's more like... I thought to make it a little bit more controversial here, right? Right, that's fine. We can have a little bit of controversy. <laughs> He's playing devil's advocate. You know, this is, um, but in general, um, if we, this is the, always the big headline, looking for a gay football superstar. But f- you're right, the circumstances. And this is the tabloid press that football players, they, how they visualized strong kings, gladiators of our society. And look at the, look at the, the chance, look at 90% of the... Or maybe eighty or seventy percent of the um, fans are still masculine. It's not a it's not a representation of the of the diversity of a society in the yeah. stadium. So there are many many reasons. Okay, we have digressed a little, so I need to gonna, I'm gonna gonna spin this back into the story. You studied in Rostock and then eventually came to Berlin. What was why did you move? What was the what's the reason? Actually, it was interesting because my first name is Ronnie, right? It's really Ronnie. So ha, is fo- that your full name, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you, you talk to Germans, they immediately know you're from East Germany. Oh, and is, oh, is that like is that? Is that yeah, Ronnie country? is a typical. Are you 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 an Aussie, right? I should know this, but I really don't. And it helped me a little bit because I had some sometimes somehow the an, an East bonus for the big for the big Western um, national papers at the. Um, 10, 15 years ago, I, I was explaining the East, right? The, the stories about oh, okay. Dynamo Dresden, Hansa Rostock. So you were a typecaster as a journalist. And I did enjoy it uh, the first time okay. because it was not very easy for, I don't know, 23, 24-year-old for yeah. writing for the Deutsche Zeitung. I believe that still paper. isn't easy. <laughs> and I did that for a while. I, I wrote that um, I, I and I enjoyed it. And um, and But I wanted to live in a big city. And I was traveling and live, like for you as well, probably. Rostock is a, is a nice little cute city. I've been there once before, actually. Yeah, but Lovely. You, you left it again, right? Yeah, I left it <laughs> on the same day I arrived. <laughs> um, no, I wanted to live in, in Berlin. And as a freelancer, I can, I can yeah. pretty much work everywhere. Right. Can you describe your first experiences of the city here? I actually was a little bit afraid of, of Berlin because uh, traveling wasn't really an issue. My, my mother never flew. That was She, she is really um, very connected to, to her home ground. And for me, more Hamburg was the city because I did internships more there. And I was a little bit afraid of Berlin. But then I once I was here, I, I, of course, I this was my city. And then I, I came here. And But the first five, six years, I didn't really use it very well, like the cultural... Um, Agenda, the theaters and the Philharmonic, and and even now after thirteen years, I can still um, I still find new new things, and this is the, of course the great thing about Berlin. And I take it you've discovered the the football scene in Berlin, though, and what it has to offer. Uh, I'm particularly interested myself in FC Union, uh, this second division club that has a very strong sense of community. Uh, you're probably more familiar with the club than I am, but. Talking about some of the positive aspects of, of football before and this, this shift in mindset that's accompanied your career, I went to this Christmas carol night at Union. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this event. Um, I'm going to try to explain it. And if you think I've fucked up any of the details along the way, feel free to, to cut me off and correct me. Um, but it started semi-illegally uh, 10 to 15 years ago when a small group of supporters just jumped into FC Union Stadium, which is located in basically in the middle of a forest, uh, not for destructive reasons, but just because they thought it would be cool to perform some sort of Christmas carol ritual on the football pitch. Are you familiar with this I'm, story? I'm, fam- I'm, I'm not familiar with the story. I'm familiar with the, uh, with the event. So it, it started semi-illegally, these supporters breaking into the stadium, but not wanting to mess up the stadium, wanting to do something positive there. And then it happened again the year after, and it happened again the year after. And over the course of the next decade or so, it was slowly institutionalized by the club. 
And now it's a massive event that's actually received global attention. I, I haven't learned about this from reading German newspapers. I couldn't even if I wanted to. I've learned about this from reading, you know, like The Guardian. It even got picked up in some US newspapers. And it was a particularly um, poignant, can I use that word? You experience. May. You may. Um, this year because the Carol event took place just a couple of days, if I recall correctly, after the, the terrorist event in Berlin at the Christmas markets. So from these Christmas markets uh, in Kudam that had been hit by this atrocity, this big group of people were suddenly huddled around a stadium on the other side of town, but also with Christmas being the premise for them coming together. And it's a really surreal experience going to a football stadium where there's essentially only one team represented there. It is just the entire stadium was sold out. Every single person in the stadium had a candle 98% of people in the stadium had a had a, a glass of glue vine in their other hand and a Christmas hat on and a book of Christmas hymns. And it was all of these people coming together, ostensibly, I suppose, for, for Christmas and also because they all support Union. But there was a much stronger sense of community there. And um, it was really one of the more positive, uplifting experiences that I've had within a football stadium before. But there wasn't a single football to be seen there. And I think that's a good example of how you can send a message that actually goes well beyond the boundaries of the football pitch. It was it was really a, a message of camaraderie and unity that had nothing to do with the game itself or the fortunes of the club. The question really is... After, no question. You really <laughs> just wanted to tell that story. I, I did. And it's fine. It was I did, lovely. I did want to tell the story. Um, it, was a, it was a great it was story. A, it was a great story and it was a lovely experience. This actually sums up the mood in the place quite well. So I was there with a friend... We were, we were in the seated section. It's like three quarters of the stadium is standing and one quarter, as I'm sure you know, is seated. And we had rested our glue vine behind us at one stage, which is a really stupid place to put your glue vine because people are walking back and forward and you run the risk in the dark of people kicking it over. So it was completely our stupidity. Some guy walks past. He kicks over the remains of my friend's glue vine, which is probably about a quarter of the cup. My glue vine was completely unscathed. And the guy's extremely apologetic and we said it's absolutely fine and he just kept going and we thought that was the end of it. Then he came all the way back and found us in the crowd about five minutes later with two new full glue vines as a token of his apology, which was one of the more generous things a football fan has done to me in a stadium before. <laughs> um, so that was really nice. The, the, the question is, whose responsibility is it um, to promote that kind of positive attitude or atmosphere within a club? Do you think that ultimately falls on the fans themselves? Or do you think the club has a role to play in, in pushing the fans in that direction? First of all, I liked how you um, told the story, right? You Thank were you. really <laughs> passionate with it. Have you, have you been before? No, I haven't been there at the singing. And of course, I, I know every December this these pictures are will come up again. This is a this is a um, every year a big story. And w when I was listening to you, I thought to myself, would I tell the story the same way? Maybe I became too cynical or maybe a little bit too skeptical because this is the topic maybe, of Maybe I was just too drunk when I was at the no, stadium. Maybe maybe you're more positive than me or maybe you haven't seen all the other didn't do that many interviews with football managers. But this is the the, the topic of my my current book, right? Um, if they really want to help, if there's really a community, or this is all the surface to um, express themselves more friendly. I don't know. It's yeah. just a question. And there is a huge hypocrisy. Maybe this is a very good example because on your own, I would say it's a. I I, I believe them. 
right? There's really a community work. But even though, if you take, for example, let's criticize the big ones, right? Bayern Munich um, donated more than one million to refugees. Uh, that's that's good. But um, why is it such a big club donating things? And because society politics should actually more um, reflect the own policy and they work with big companies um, that that work in, in Asia in Asia for example you know the, the football industry all the sponsors and Adidas Nike and they all um, uh, people can't really aff- um, if you if you if you're based with your factories in Asia and on the one hand they have projects for for kids on the other high on the other side they depend on on these big big firms and if you if you look at the numbers even on your Berlin has a big budget like two million as a No, zweistellig, million. Uh, Two-digit. Two-digit right. millions. Two-digit millions. Yeah. Right. I learned something. There. You didn't, because that's not how you that's say not, it. Anyway. That's not correct. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> well, how do you fucking say it? Two-digit, like, double-digit million? <laughs> double-digit million? Budget in the... You know what I, I, I I'll tell you what you can say. Uh, an eight-figure budget. All right. Well, that's a lot of counting. I hope the audience gets it. <laughs> They will get it. Well, for example, Bayern Munich is so so proud of like this this former Jewish president they won the first uh, champion with in 1932 when I make programs. Kurt Landau, oh. a Jewish president. But that was like, a, but there's a really this, that's a really debated topic, right? The, the whole Bayern Munich's role um, in in that time is really highly debated because they make themselves out as being the the goody goodies that the only ones that did sort of like they always make them out themselves out of being like the resistance or having been the resistance during that time and there's. Quite a bit of like some accounts yeah. um, that tell a different story, or like at least not tell a story of them being like, you know, resisting and painting themselves in such a bright light. Yeah, there's a research now going on how it really mm. was. But the the first championship they had a Jewish president, and the, without this Jewish president, Bayern Munich would not exist probably nowadays. On the other hand, they go to Qatar and to Saudi yeah. Arabia, where mm. Jews are not uh, um, allowed to. Um, to travel to um so there's a hypocrisy and, and they also have don't they have a, a president or a chairman who spent time in jail for tax evasion yeah and he's still hailed as a champion of the club well you're right well, yeah, this is a guy it. who's cheated the taxpayers many of whom would be Bayern supporters out of their own money hmm. and yet is still celebrated there Yeah, to come, but to come back to your question, the club I think has to be more professional and it's not it's not bad to connect uh, the social things with Sponsoring, spon- sponsoring as well. Why not? And um, so, it, 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 we, with ide- idealism and romanticism, you can't really change a commercial logics of football. You can't. It has to be prof- professionally organized. And pictures like the Christmas thing, well, they're nice. They touch our heart, and then it's great. And it helps the club to be as a to be presented as a as a welcoming community club. But um, even in Union Berlin, is really deeply connected into the business and. Yeah. Is it like who are the who are the people that run like the funny thing is even to me like oh, New Berlin still sounds like sort of like a household name like a you know like a good earnest sort of you know almost like a the club of the working people and like it's not is it like they have a management they're probably very professional managers they probably sure. know what they're doing they're of like they profit driven and otherwise how, they wouldn't they wouldn't be yeah. uh, that far but let's maybe maybe first league is better but if you have for example Werder Bremen has 150 employees 150 and 10 of them are only responsible for social things 
10. This is the number one club. No other club has so many um, um, workers for the social CSR thing. And why not taking this as a standard, a minimum standard in the Bundesliga, right? Mm. So the most clubs, they do it like marketing and have one or two people doing this. But this should be a minimum, another maximum. And, yeah. and, and who, whose responsibility is it to set that standard, though? I agree with you that it would be great to see it there, but I suppose the problem is if that standard or if that, that number, that proportion, 10 in 150, isn't making you money and your competitors, they're only hiring two in 150, they're putting more people in the sales team, they're making more money, or they then, then they perform better in the championships and at the end of the day, it feels like that's what management care about more than anything else. And so if your ability to drive social impact in some sense actually prevents you or, or, or curtails your ability to move up the table, then I could imagine that it would be very difficult to gain the buy-in you require to, to stick with that kind of proportion. But maybe another politics would help to attract a different audience, more women or more people um, with more diverse background and... Um, Bremen is very interesting. Uh, they attracted different sponsors that haven't been really interesting in football. They wanted to use the football more as a medium to to talk about other things, educational things, cultural things. And it would be ideal if a club president would really like to change society. I don't see that in many, many clubs, but mm. this, would be, this would be perfect. But then clubs are companies, right? And then how many corporate ducks 30 ceos do you see that you would attribute a genuine desire to make social change like i would probably say zero and that's not even like a german thing i don't even really believe that someone like elon musk really wants social change he's supposed to bolster ego does. fuck off yeah he does so like so their companies don't let's not digress <laughs> like their companies right and that's that's where it's like inherently obviously they, they, they're going to go by that profit motive. So it's going to be very, it's, it's, it's always this weird balance. Also, even like CSR, like corporate social responsibility, for those that don't know what CSR is, in itself is a, let's just say like a complex issue because part of it has always been like the reason CSR even exists, at least to my knowledge, is partially just a marketing instrument. It's just a way for companies or was a way for companies to pretend or to give off the appearance that they're, doing good things like, to society, right? So I'm guessing the, 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 the larger the question at hand is sort of why should clubs in the first place do social good? Well, because they just have make so much money. So that's an answer, I think. But also who's to enforce that? And I think that's what I, where Andrew was coming from. Like, should the leagues say, hey, you have to sponsor X percent? Should the fans be like, I'm not going to you? I'm not going to your, to your, to your um, games unless you're doing this. Should the sponsors say, um, you know, I'm not sponsoring this club? Like, there's, there's so many angles to approach this from. And depending on how liberal you are in your economics, <laughs> um, there's, I'm guessing there'll be people that will disagree with the notion that, yeah, you need a minimum limit of CSR people, like, just to counter that notion a little. You wanted controversy. Yeah, that's <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I say something yeah. here? I Was just, I rambling? I say, I'm not uh, sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Thank I switched you. off for a good three minutes there, but I, I picked up <laughs> on one thing you said that I would like to at least call into question, which is this idea that football clubs are businesses at the end of the day. That is, of course, true from a legal and operational standpoint. But I feel like football clubs or sports clubs in general have more of a responsibility to the people because the fans are the lifeblood of the industry that they're in. 
The fans are responsible for the game itself. And football, football in particular, it is called, or at least it used to be called, the people's game. And so by monetizing or commercializing the people's game, the institutions that govern the game have made themselves obscenely rich, absolutely obscenely rich, and yet they do so little to give back, comparatively speaking, to the people who make the game what it is. I mean, just imagine the Bundesliga without anyone in the stadiums. It would be nothing. The fans bring the atmosphere, the drama, the theatrics, and yet they they really get nothing in, in return for it, or at least that's my take. And you talk about examples like Bayern Munich saying, we gave a million euros to, to refugees during the peak of the crisis in 2015. They didn't even really give that money to the refugees. They hosted a charity match. They charged their fans to come to the charity match. Their, their fans handed over a million euros. They just, the Bayern players just played a game. And then Bayern donate this money to the initiatives and say, look at us giving back. So even the, the good that they're doing to a large extent is just being fueled from, from the people. This isn't a question at all, but that's my con- you can respond to it. <laughs> I, will concede that, I, I will concede that point. I think you, you yeah, you nicely also answered the question, why should, why, should, why should football clubs have more of that responsibility rather than like other companies? And you answered that with the fans which I can accept. I mean, the majority of football fans does not expect any CSR. If Breda Bremen now plays, uh, the, I don't know, the 10th season, um, being afraid of going down in the second division, they nobody they want to have a, the best forward and not a social project. But in, in, in Great Britain, for example, right, the Labour government, uh, Tony Blair, they really um, put conditions on the club. You make so much money, we expect something um, to, be, to, go, to give back. And if you look at Germany, the state does give money to the football clubs, right? The stadiums, the security, the police, the fan projects. Um, all the lower league clubs can use the the uh, the areas of the 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 stadiums um, mostly for free. So there's a if you look all the the television rights, right? ARD, etc. They are public. Um, uh, television stations. They're financing the football, and this is all your and and, and our. Um, taxes, so they, they have a responsibility and of course the league um, the Bundesliga has so many rules um, to that, that clubs do get a license, why not putting something into the license um, program yeah? Yeah. Social. Uh, in England uh, a football player like Per Metisak, I met him in London, they have it in the contract and then they, they go regularly to, to hospitals or to other things and for example FC Arsenal in their stadium, it's, it feels like a like a school. They have so many so many projects. Manchester United has a, a foundation with more than sixty employees. I mean, it's incredible. It's just like they, they do see the point and and um, a very professional way, not romanticized. Then, have you have you ever thought about? Okay, otherwise I'll, I'll phrase it a different way. What's the thing that drives you most? Is, is that the impact that you want to have? When So you could go into charity. You could go into right now with what you've done so far. You could say, hey, you know what? I could have most impact if I take all this knowledge and I'll actually work in like a football charity um, or I'll found one or I'll talk players into joining one or, you know, I'll do, I'll do that sort of work. But somehow that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is publicizing great content. So what's the thing that like... That drives you. Is it the impact? Is it the do you want to be heard? Do you want to have your voice heard? Like this is a really, really harsh transition, but I wanted to have this question. This is an v- interesting question I asked myself recently um, as well because I it's not very easy to 
publish to, or to get the, the space in the newspapers. Um, I wrote a book which you might uh, assume is not really a bestseller because it's not really a spectacular title. People read it, but it's not really a, a big thing. And of course, I would like to be read um, from, a, from a wider audience. Um, I did think about maybe changing and, and work myself uh, uh, into a foundation or maybe even go into politics. I, I Sometimes I'm thinking about it. But then I, I kind of like it to be independent and be critical yeah. because I'm a journalist, right? And, and I can say my opinion. And when I'm on a panel and sometimes I'm, I'm hosting myself, uh, I host panels where I am a guest on a panel, I'm always the guy who speaks freely, right? Everybody mm. else is, yeah. is connected to an organization. Is, and is this why you're a freelancer as well? You're not tempted to start working for a larger media agency? Um, you, yes, probably. Because I I can... I mean, look, I, I, I do radio features. I write books. I can um, give lectures. I can travel. This is really great. It's a it's yeah. perfect variety of, of doing things. But you probably know it that you're not really always satisfied and, and you always miss the, the things that you not have mm -hmm. don't have. Yeah. And um, you, are you that type of personality? Are you the are you always going ah do I, am I missing out on something? If if I'm doing A, am I missing out on B or like am I going far enough with this or should I have taken a different path? Are you that kind of do you have that sort of I'm not sure even towards a competitive edge, but like a really high standard that you sort of hold yourself accountable to? maybe not that intensively but if we if we all would not be like this maybe we wouldn't be that creative so if i'm a freelancer i don't really have yeah. that much response from from my editors so i have to fight with myself yeah. and this this probably keeps me going but um the the moment or the moments where i'm the most where i'm very satisfied is when i meet new people mm. for example i i covered uh, one of the chapters in my book was about Disco uh, with discover football in lebanon they organized mm. a football tournament for for uh, against sexism and for to to strengthen the um, women in the middle east and it was like fantastic right i i yeah i was in a different country i met great people and i got money for it so what what's 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 not to love? That. What was your perception like of what they're doing over there? Did it seem like it was having an impact? I was now. This is the problem. Which I I was there four or five days, right? And I can see something. I get an impression. But um, maybe ten years ago, I would have allowed myself to have a stronger opinion. Mm -hmm. um, not anymore. So I just uh, describe it, and maybe let the people talk and explain themselves, and. Um, This is what I learned as well, not to, because everybody nowadays, everybody, even without a knowledge, has, an has a strong opinion. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't, this is not really very healthy for a public, um, for a public media. Um, But it's difficult, it's difficult if you hear people have arguably shit opinions and being really loud and vocal about them to not have like the urge to have a strong counter opinion. Like, especially if you're a journalist, surely in like the... The day and age, and this makes me sound old and I'm really young, but the day and age of the media that we, that we live in, um, it's, it's so shouty, right? It's very, very shouty. Everyone has to have like a really loud and really loud opinion. And if you're an actual journalist, which, you know, most of these people aren't, don't you get this like strong sense that you need to work against it and like shout back? Do you need to hold yourself back? I really, when do, I do, you ever scream at people? Is what Fred's asking. <laughs> no, I, 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 
another thing that I learned, and I really, I thought 10, 15 years ago in my early 20s that I, as a journalist, I do have power. I really thought I have power, right? Because I, I, I reach people and I can change their minds. Um, that I is power. <laughs> yeah, but um, now, especially after this debate with Trump and mm. all the great newspapers really didn't really have an impact. And that guy was elected. And same here with the AFD and and, and look at Holland and France mm. and, and all the other neighbor countries. Yeah. Um, we are, I think, more realistic now at me, at least I, I can just speak for myself. I'm more realistic now. I I would rather um, do the smaller story and reach a smaller audience, discuss with them instead of yelling around. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I'm just one but, piece of the puzzle. But won't you just like only reach the people that are already on your side? Isn't that the problem? Like, I mean... No offense, but like if you're doing like a Deutschland, you do Deutschland ra radio. Right. Yeah. If you look like a show on that, like chances are most people you're reaching are pretty fucking educated. Like, don't you think they're like already of your opinion? I agree. I agree. I have uh, when my the book about right wing extremism, I had, I don't know, probably 200 lectures. And most of the time, the audience we had, of course, people were already interested in that. We're thinking about this, and, and all the foundations do think about this. The ministries are thinking about this, and the question is how to change it. Mm. And this is always the big term, the politi political parties can't reach people anymore. This is like, I mean... I don't agree. <laughs> should we have democracy fireworkers that knock on, on people's doors and, and tell them, you have to vote? I mean, we were citizens in that, in, that, in that country have a responsibility <laughs> yourself. It's yeah. frustrating. It's a big frustration. It's interesting because we had Christopher Lauer um, on the show. It's not um, like I think, I think two weeks ago or something like that. And um, he's he's of this. I don't, uh, do you know him? He's I, know, a SPI. I know personally, but I yeah, I do know him. He's an SPD politician, and um, he has this notion of like positive populism, right? Where he goes, um, "Hey, we're we're right. Like we're the right. Like we're we're right in our opinion. Like we're definitely the smart ones." So why not like be super populist about it and like have like obvious and like obvious notions that we just sort of sh yeah shout at people through whatever means are at our disposal like whether that's memes on Twitter or like anything really um, which is I thought was an interesting approach and I guess goes kind of against what you just said which is more like I'll, I'll use the I'll use my inside voice and you know. Maybe he's right. Maybe I don't, he's, maybe, I don't think. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying it's like a, an interesting counter proposition to sort of, the, I guess, the pro approach that you've taken uh, to the, the the shouting match that all of society seems to be in right now. I just don't feel comfortable. I, I I'm not at Twitter, and I've very long. I I didn't feel really comfortable on Facebook. Now I I really I am doing it more, but I it, 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 I don't feel really comfortable, and I. I um, I do my long radio features. Probably that the audience is relatively small. Um, a book with 300 pages, um, the audience is relatively small. But on the other hand, now this year, for example, I do a radio feature about Russian activists against homophobia. Mm -hmm. I do a feature about uh, female ultras that always face sexualized violence. So um, I, I, I try to th look for topics that are really not really present in the on the agenda. And I have to admit that I want to learn something myself. And, mm. um, right. um, but I, I really, I, I think about it. Maybe Christopher Lauer is right. Maybe Martin Schulz is right. Um, to be more, but... Um, to be louder. To be louder. and But the louder you are, uh, the, the, mm, the probability is growing that you lose facts and you yeah. lose authenticity and... Credibility and all these. Yeah. Yes. 
things that we fought so hard. And for. when I do write for online media, for example, and uh, there, I, I don't know, within an hour, they have 300 comments, and I fight my, th I fight myself through them, and I. Do you reply? Do you do you do you go? Do you actually reply? No, they they they're making me sad because the yeah. majority is like. Um, not stupid but it's stupid <laughs> so um and let's say it's not thought out <laughs> and of course I, i i i i control myself and i don't want to say no this is i don't want to generalize ever so i really think maybe this is a coincidence and maybe this is they had a bad day but it can only be so many coincidences yeah no i um it's very hard to like read comment sections in general right like that's a that's a difficult thing on like any any medium really It sounds like you're remaining remarkably tranquil at a time when people are getting more and more angry in these discussions. I don't know whether that's something that you've had to consciously work on. Do you think that it's do you think that it has helped taking this different approach to football, looking at the background stories insofar as it's allowed you to remove yourself from from the mainstream fixation on the game? and communicate with smaller communities so you're not exposed to, say, um, a soul-destroying wave of, of, of criticism in the one blow? Sometimes the, the sad thing is that I sometimes am cynical. So, for example, last year in Paris during the Euro 2016, I, I lived four weeks in Paris, and uh, um, there wasn't really an interest in the tournament anymore. I didn't really mm. want to watch the game. So yeah. I was interested in all the, I did a story and uh, I compared the integration model of France and Germany and all the multicultural teams. So uh, there were many interesting stories, the Russian hooligans, you remember in Marseille. Yeah, of course. Um, plenty of stories, but I didn't really felt, uh, yeah, Germany was successful again, but I, um, and is it really good? And is it, is it, is it healthy if, a, if there's a sports journalist sports journalist who was not really connected anymore to the football itself and sometimes maybe i think maybe i should drop it totally and look for a totally different field maybe you're But just a sounds... journalist who just happens to have loads of investigative stories in the vicinity of sports <laughs> yeah it sounds like you are still connected to the football though you're just connected to a side of the football that most people aren't familiar with if you still get excited by a story about female ultras Or excited about a story about the um, various racial mixes of, of German or French teams. That's still a football story. It's just not a football story in the way that we come to understand football stories because they're so few and far between. Football, I kept saying this stat to Fred before, we, um, before you came here, before we started the recording. Football has, as you would know, more than 2 billion fans spread all over the world. That makes it, if I, if I understand correctly, the largest social phenomenon on the planet. You would think that the largest social phenomenon on the planet would be discussed in social terms far more frequently than what it is, but it is really just the same 10, 15, 20 players who are in the spotlight all the time, the same clubs in the spotlight. Is he going to transfer clubs? Is he not? Is he, are they going to win the championship? At the same time, there's this cultural fabric that surrounds the game and that is so consequential to society when you're talking about, you know, neo-Nazis on the one hand and you're also talking about unity and Christmas carols on the other that I, I, I hope you keep up the good fight. <laughs> no, I, actually, I like how positive you are. I should come here more often. Um, <laughs> so you've grown a little tired and there's a certain amount of cynicism. Oh, yeah, it's a strong word, and, and, and it depends on my mood. But all the all the topics that I that I do—homophobia, sexism, 
culture. I mean, I, I, I did a report about uh, the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven because uh, the Berlin Philharmonic has a, has a, an annual tournament. So <laughs> I, 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 I interviewed, because I'm interested yeah. in music, so what, I, what do I do? I interviewed the, the orchestra yeah. players and compared Massey to a, to a cello player of the Berlin Philharmonic. <laughs> so I did everything. But um, Really getting creative in how you can connect <laughs> stories to football. <laughs> Right. So, but I can do. Why? Why not becoming a cultural journalist and just uh, just uh, write about classic music? Or why not doing about theater? Why not doing about politics? So, isn't it a little just if I just take the a little bit of football to to make it in the sports section? I don't know. I still have thirty years to work, so there's uh, there's loads of options of things you could yes. do. Yeah. And, should and we should we close with a question about those thirty years? What do you think the the future holds for you professionally, and what do you think the next big story in football will be? That's a big tier, two-tiered question there. <laughs> it's like, the, like always the, the Obama and Trump press conferences where they take two or three questions in one question, right? So yeah, but you can't do that with politicians because they only answer the one that they want to. But That's you true. have to answer both. <laughs> That's true. I'm actually, at the moment, I'm learning Spanish. Um, since November, I have my, uh, finished my fourth course. And um, I visited Mexico City last year. And I, I, maybe I want to um, spend more time in, in Latin America yeah. and, and do some stories there. Because I want to have my interviews in Spanish, and um, yeah, I, I will follow these these stories. And um, next year we have the World Cup in Russia. I'm looking forward to to the World Cup because I'm I feel a little bit connected to the Russian culture. I want to I want to get to know more about Russia, and I think from from tournament to tournament, and hope that I. Um, Actually, yeah, I have one final question. There's still the second part of my question to answer. Oh my god! What was that Go again? The second? What's the big story? The, the, next, the next big story, big story in future. Has no one it, ever it, it told you that prediction is a bad form of journalism? <laughs> <laughs> Joking. Go on. Um, the big. I don't know. Um, maybe there is no big story anymore because you remember when when Spiegel did the big cover story about Ronaldo and um, Özil about the football leagues. Everybody was, everybody was a little bit tired of it. Again, mm. yeah, we know football is a dark side. Well, yeah. Who gives a shit? Mm. Let's continue to watch Champions League. Final, final question. Which of your books should people go buy? I mean, this is just a question I can, I can answer. All of them, of course. And, <laughs> um, of course, the current one. Um, the current one. Yeah. And because I really, it's the thickest if I might say, so the most, and I really, I'm, I'm very satisfied with it because um, it's very interesting. The research is always fun. Yeah. The traveling is always fun. But at least for me, the writing is is not that much fun. I mean, I, I wrote nearly a year, just just a writing yeah. process. And in winter, you know, the November in Berlin, writing is like, and I'm, yeah. Yeah. The um, book is called? Gesellschaftsspielchen which is a translation of society games, just more in an ironic way yeah. um, to show the hypocrisy. And um, yeah, it's all... A, and I want, of course, I want to attend a political audience who could be more interested in football and the other way around as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope there are many more books to come. So thanks very much for joining us, Ronnie. Thanks for having me. It was very interesting. Thanks. Thanks. Do you feel like you're currently in a crisis and you don't really know where life is taking you? Um, how, how did you know? I know you well. Do you know what would help with that? Do you know what would what, surely what, make you feel better? What would help with that, Fred? If you did a favor to some people that you know and like. You know, you could, you could go into 
your phone, go into the podcast app. You could type could. in, anyone could really, anyone could type in in Berlin. Anyone who's feeling down, anyone who feels sorry about themselves. You can go into your phone, you type in in Berlin, you go into our pod and you give us a five-star rating. It's, it's harder than that, isn't it? Don't you need to go to like a special section? I'm not sure how exactly it works, but I'm sure anyone who enjoyed the episode, anyone who enjoyed <laughs> this episode... Be willing to put in the goddamn time. And who wants us to be found by more people... Please leave a rating. Yeah, and maybe, ap- maybe even a review. Maybe even a review. If you're particularly We'd appreciate it. You don't have to. You don't need to. But it'd be nice. It sure, it sure would be nice. Thank you. <laughs>